from that time, 1841 until 1975, we essentially know nothing about anything having to do with the LDS church in Egypt. That's like a, a century. Good Monday morning, and welcome back to The Daily Buzz. I'm Dayton Nolander. Egypt has many ties to Christian scripture, from the Israelites' escape and Moses parting the Red Sea, to Joseph being sold into slavery and eventually rising to prominence at the Pharaoh's side. Reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack joins the podcast to discuss her latest story about modern-day religion in Egypt, with a particular focus on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. So you had a story published Sunday about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its presence in Egypt of all places. Uh, can you tell us where you got the idea for this story? Um, it's a pretty simple idea. I was on assignment in Israel-Palestine to write about the three holidays that coincided in April, Passover, Ramadan, and Easter. And when you're in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, across the world like that, you might as well go to Egypt. <laughs> so I pitched the idea of a story about Egypt, but I, I really had no idea what I was getting into. So it was pretty fascinating. Sure. Um, and can you describe the modern beginnings of the church's presence in Egypt? Uh, when did it begin and what did members, uh, LDS members worship look like at that time? Well, uh, the, as far as I could tell from all the history that I uh, researched, the first uh, Latter-day Saint to actually go to Egypt was an apostle, an LDS apostle in 1841 named Orson Hyde. He was on his way to Jerusalem, but he stopped off in Egypt. As far as we know, he didn't launch any congregation. He didn't, may not have even preached. We don't know anything about it except that he stopped there. And from that time, 1841 until 1975, we essentially know nothing about anything having to do with the LDS church in Egypt. So it's like a, a century. Um, but in, in, in 1975, 74, actually two Latter-day Saints uh, students found themselves in Cairo, ended up being roommates, and the the church in Utah decided, you know, that's not a bad, there's two of them, there are probably more, and there were more, there were some church members who were married to Egyptians who were longtime uh, members who lived there, so they set up a, a what is known as a branch, which means a small congregation, um, the students were Americans and, um, that was sort of the modern beginnings of it. One of them who's quoted in my story is a guy named, um, Dill Parkinson, Dilworth Parkinson. He was a student and a senior at Brigham Young University. And he and his wife went back there in 1978 and between those, in those four years, the church had grown from that little tiny branch that met actually in their, in their room, uh, Parkinson and his roommate's room, to, uh, you know, 40 or 50 people in four years. And the church 
since 1974 has had its ups and downs in terms of membership, never much many more than, you know, 100, maybe 150. And then it, it would go down if Egypt had any issues with the U.S. because it's a very American-born faith. Sure. And so I know, like you said, you talked with several LDS church members who have lived in Egypt. Um, how did they describe their time uh, living and worshiping there? Well, everyone I talked to really loved living in Egypt. Hmm. Uh, even though the LDS church congregations were tiny, there's a real sense of uh, family about that. But it's such an exotic place and such an interesting place. Uh, in terms of their own faith, every person I talked to said their own faith was enlarged by the experience, enriched by the experience. Mm. To live among, you know, this uh, such a historic place with you know, obviously the, the pyramids, but also a, a fascination among Egyptians for the afterlife. So they found themselves having lots of common beliefs about religion obviously not exactly the same. It, Egypt is, of course, an Islamic nation. So but Muslims and Mormons have actually, frankly, a lot in common. And then there are plenty of Christians who live there too, Coptic Christians. So that was pretty fascinating. And so that really segues nicely into my next question here. And you may have already answered part of it, but um, in your story, you also touched on members of other faiths, like you said, Muslims, Jews, other Christians who live in Egypt as well. Um, how did these faiths, uh, how do these faiths uh, interact with one another? Well, I, from the people I talked to, it seemed that the faiths get along pretty well. Uh, it's essentially like most Muslim nations, proselytizing is uh, practically forbidden. So it's not like Muslims are becoming, very, very many Muslims are becoming Christians or, or vice versa. And certainly the LDS church does not allow any proselytizing in Egypt, even though it's, it's kind of a missionary church, but it doesn't allow that there in order to be respectful and, and obedient to Egypt's laws. But on the other hand, the Christians and Muslims do have a lot in common. And a big thing they have in common is the Bible or stories. Muslims have, believe in Moses and uh, a biblical figure who was allegedly lived in Egypt in the household of the Pharaoh. So these stories, and then, and then there's the story of Jesus and his family fleeing, you know, the baby Jesus and his parents fleeing uh, from Jerusalem, going to Egypt. And so there's lots of Christian sites also in Cairo where Christians believe the Holy Family stayed or stopped or whatever. There's a pretty, pretty strong Coptic Christian minority in this Islamic nation. And when I say minority, it's nothing like the LDS minority, which of you know, a hundred or whatever. It's, it's really thousands and thousands of people who are Coptic Christians and they're well accepted, recognized by the government. Sure. And uh, you, so you mentioned this, this ban on proselytizing um, yes. LDS church there. Um, mm -hmm. 
and you said, you know, the church doesn't send missionaries over there. Are the members who are there though, are they pretty diligent about keeping kind of to themselves and, and not proselytizing? Yes, they absolutely are. Any new newcomer, visitor, or tourist who comes to church, and the church, the LDS church has its Sabbath on Friday there. Oh. And if anyone shows up, they make it very clear, you know, there'll be no proselytizing in Egypt. And if a Muslim person finds himself or herself at the church, the LDS church, they are politely told, I'm sorry, you can't worship with us. It's against the law. And so they're, they're very, very diligent about that. That's interesting. Well, again, that's all I have for you today, but Peggy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, very welcome. You can find Peggy's story online at sltrib.com. Next, Andy Larson, the Tribune's jazz beat reporter, provides a brief recap of Salt Lake City's NBA Summer League play. The Salt Lake City Summer League wrapped up last week with six games across four teams, the Utah Jazz, the Philadelphia 76ers, the Memphis Grizzlies, and the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Jazz finished winless with an 0-3 record in the tournament, but the other teams won two and lost one game each. In particular, it was Jazz second-year player Jared Butler who struggled at first before rebounding in a second game, and Brazilian Bruno Caboclo, also on the Jazz, made his case to be on the Jazz's final team when the team uh, picked in, in September. But it was two Oklahoma City players that stood out the most, actually. Number two overall pick, seven-foot Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga, impressed with his dual ability to shoot threes and block shots near the rim. Josh Giddy, the 19-year-old Australian, was probably the league's best player, averaging nearly a triple-double in his three games. Now, the Jazz head to the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas for the next week, playing five games down there. NBA training camp, though, doesn't begin until September. Thanks, Andy. And another big thanks to Salt Lake City band The Pelicans for our music, and to Grant Birmingham for producing today's episode. We'll be back with more news tomorrow.